I love interacting with our kids at IDC. And last uh, Sunday uh, at the 11, uh, we were singing the final song. And I asked one of our little four-year-olds uh, in this church, do you like church? And she said, not really, but I like the singing. <laughs> and maybe one day she'll say the sermon. Uh, her, her comment was refreshingly honest. And we are looking at a very honest book uh, in Ecclesiastes. If you're new with us, this is just week two. Uh, and this book speaks about the harsh realities of life under the sun, the frustrations, the futility, uh, the perplexing pains of life. And if this book is to minister to us, uh, we must be honest. We must be honest with ourselves. We must be honest before the Lord and ask for him to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. And so let's pray uh, for that to happen uh, this morning. Father, truly you are worthy. We are under your word now. We ask for you to come and minister to our souls. Come lead us into the path of wisdom. Come lead us into the lifestyle, the character of Jesus Christ. Come and show us yourself in your word, we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, if you were following along in the text that uh, Marlene was reading a, a, a longer portion of uh, text this morning, uh, what we're on is a journey. Uh, we're following a guy on a journey in his quest uh, for satisfaction, his quest for joy. And Solomon uh, is the guy who had uh, virtually, you could say, had it all, and having everything almost killed him. If you can picture this morning, perhaps people like Tom Brady, Hugh Hefner, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, other famous celebrities who are known for certain things like money or power or influence or pleasure or productivity, and you can begin to grasp something of Solomon's life. Solomon had no unmet fantasies, and yet nothing could satisfy his thirsty soul. And it's not until he gets to chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, the last portion of the text this morning that you see the real answer to this human pursuit of pleasure and meaning. Now, you may not be able to identify with certain celebrities. You may not be able to identify with the lifestyle of Solomon. But we can all identify with this human condition. All of us recognize that something is broken and something is missing. Something is broken in this world. Something is broken in us. Something is missing in us. And this sense of brokenness and this sense of lack sends us hunting happiness. It seems like every human being realizes this. You hear it echoed in songs, numerous songs that have something like uh, John Mayer's song, Something's Missing and I Don't Know How to Fix It. Philosophers have talked about this pursuit of pleasure and happiness uh, for years, Blaise Pascal famously said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. It's been said before, as we've mentioned before, as one has said before, <laughs> every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for Jesus. There is a quest in us for satisfaction, and possessions don't bring it, right? 
uh, Alex de Tuckville, who toured the United States in 1830, observed in Americans what he called a strange melancholy that haunted Americans. He said, in the midst of abundance, in the midst of abundance, there is a strange melancholy, a lack. C.S. Lewis points us in the right direction for this human condition when he wrote, if I find in myself desires for which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You, need, you see, we need something beyond the sun to satisfy our hearts. And when we go looking for things to give us what only God can give us, it only leads us to despair. That's called idolatry. Idols will never satisfy. Even good things can be turned into God things. And when that happens, we are not fulfilled. So the question for us all this morning is a very basic question. What do you think will make you truly happy? What do you think will tr make you truly satisfied and fulfilled? And as a kid, I was just kind of reflecting back on the things that I thought, if I could get that thing, man, I'd be happy. It was wrestling for a long time for me. I loved wrestling, not real wrestling, the fake wrestling. And I just, I wanted all the little wrestling figures. I went and watched wrestling. I had a wrestling mask, you know. Um, and eventually, uh, I kind of gave up the, the wrestling pursuits. And uh, then Nintendo came out. And then it was Super Mario Brothers. I was so good at Super Mario Brothers. I almost won a, a big tournament uh, playing Mario Brothers. And then, you know, the, the cartridges stopped working. You had to blow on the thing uh, to, to get it to work. And, and then eventually you throw the thing out and you get a, a new system. And, and you're hoping that will sort of satisfy this, this inner craving that you have. Then it turned into cars. And I had this little season of just uh, loving uh, automobiles. And then, of course, uh, there are the girlfriends. Then there is popularity. Then there is the desire for scholarship. It's all of these things as you move through life. And as an adult, we just have different toys. Uh, we, we can look to things. Some of them are even respectable things to give us what only God uh, can give us. Some are shameful things. Many go the way of the prodigal son to the clubs and to Vegas or making it rain. Solomon did all that, and none of it satisfied. And it's in great contrast to that that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, I'm having nothing, yet I have everything. Like possessions themselves don't give me what I think they can give me. I can possess everything if I have Christ. And so in our text today, what I want you to see are three reasons for Solomon's despair and one source of joy. Three reasons for despair and one source of joy. First reason for despair is that wisdom will not satisfy. He says in verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So you notice here how sincere this pursuit is. Solomon says he, he set his heart on this. He is pursuing it with passion. He's searching out all that is done under heaven. So it's a comprehensive search. It's a sincere search. And what he says is that it's an, an, an unhappy business. This is leaving him gloomy, right? I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Now this wisdom here, uh, it, it, as we said last week, Solomon doesn't really mention God with the, with the exception of this one brief reference until the end of chapter 2. It's a... It's a pursuit not of a divine wisdom per se, 
but of uh, a human wisdom. There's no mention of God. And, and because of that, you can't get to the why questions that bother you apart from God. You can learn a lot, and learning is, is wonderful. Christians have always promoted quality education. But the, the deep issues of life are discovered in divine revelation, in divine wisdom. But here, Solomon is just pursuing this world of wisdom, and it has left him uh, with a very pessimistic attitude. It's a very unhappy business, meaning that this search for more wisdom and this search for meaning, and again, apart from God here, says that this is a very lousy job. It's an unhappy business. So what Solomon is challenging in this, this first lament is the idea that the pursuit of knowledge will fulfill you. It won't. Getting a degree or multiple degrees uh, is good, fine and good. Um, but it's not the end for which we were created. Because information of the mind will not lead to the satisfaction of the heart. People with vast brains can still take part in great uh, sin. Uh, rape, immorality, debauchery. We read about all of this in prestigious universities, don't we? We know better. We know that getting a degree does not necessarily bring you meaning and joy. I have a PhD. My dad has a GED. And I'm not more fulfilled than him because of my degree. And he can still beat me at Trivia Pursuit. <laughs> very smart man <laughs> and we should remember that here we are in the triangle the area that boasts most PhDs per capita in America that's really cool and exciting but most the most PhDs does not mean the most satisfied learn from Solomon they're coming from around the world to hear from him and Solomon concludes it's all a very unhappy business I, there is no satisfaction it's vanity notice what he says in verse 15 a bit of a proverb what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. Again, something's broken and something is missing. Something's crooked. Something is, is bent. It's bent out of shape. And it cannot be corrected. Something is lacking. There's, life doesn't seem to, to add up. And Solomon here is frustrated with it all. And we know this, don't we? That there is something broken. We would love to fix certain things like family conflicts or estrangement from friends or the wrongs done to us by those in power, or disease, or disability, or our own moral failures, death and loss. We would love to bend these things back, but something is broken, something is missing. It doesn't always add up. And he says in 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over, uh, who, who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom, and now he adds a, another dimension, which is going to occupy his mind in chapter 2, namely madness and folly. I went the other direction. I perceive that this also is a striving after the wind. We said last week, when you look at Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, and you look at the, the miserable state of things, the groaning of creation, you, if you do not go to God in the brokenness, you end up with escapism, trying not to think about the brokenness, or you end up in nihilism, concluding there is no meaning in life, or you go the way to, of hedonism and say, well, there's no real point to anything, so let's just live it up. And that's what he's going to do next. He's going to take us on a journey of hedonism. 
And you see that this, this, this longing for meaning and joy, again, devoid of God to this point, leaves him with this feeling of it's striving after the wind. This is one of Solomon's favorite phrases. It's like trying to grab the wind. Go try to do that. And when you, you, you can't do it, there's nothing there. It's, it's madness. So he says, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, some of you may want to use that as an excuse not to study, right? <laughs> but we, we understand this, don't we? We say ignorance is, is bliss. Um, when you know things, there's a, a sense in which you know more grief, uh, you know more pain, perhaps you even have more questions. And so he says here, more knowledge, more problems. Like the great philosopher Biggie Smalls, who, who used to say, more money, more problems. Uh, here, Solomon is saying, mo knowledge, mo problems. <laughs> so the, the point here of these, these opening verses is that wisdom, the pursuit of meaning, devoid of God, leaves us unsatisfied. Solomon has, has not yet talked about Scripture. He's not seeking God in prayer. He's not considered the majesty of God, the glory of God. He will, but he hasn't yet. This is a secular perspective on life, and it leaves us Frustrated. Frustrated. But you don't have to have this perspective. We can look to Christ who redeems us from futility, who makes straight what is crooked, who shows us the path of wisdom. I love how when Paul's talking about wisdom in 1 Corinthians, he says that God, or Christ has destroyed the wisdom of the wise and offered true wisdom to those who cling to the cross. At the cross, we see wisdom on display. We cling to that wisdom, the wisdom that is centered on our crucified and resurrected and returning Redeemer. That's where we find this meaning. This is where we find this joy. This is a happy business as we meditate on him. Well, the second reason for despair is pleasure. Pleasure will not satisfy. He goes down this, this trail here. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So he's going he's gonna to have a test, but it's not a test like in a classroom it's actually more along the lines of someone walking down a street and going into various shops and places. Then he reflects a bit on his life. And Solomon here is, uh, gives us uh, kind of a, a spoiler alert when he says, but behold, this also was vanity. So he tells us what the, the conclusion to this test is going to be before he takes us on this trail. And so he says, I'm going to test myself with pleasure Enjoy yourself, behold, this was vanity. Now, last week I said that you should read Romans chapter 8 with Ecclesiastes because you have this similar connection with the word vanity as, as translated in our text um, and the, the word in uh, Romans 8 with futility, uh, that the world is groaning in futility. That word also appears in another text that I think it's helpful to keep in mind as we read Ecclesiastes, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to what Peter says. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, from the vanity of this life. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter here in, in that text tells us that Jesus not only saved us from wrath or condemnation, but he's also saved us from stupid, right? He's redeemed us from futility. He's redeemed us from vanity. He's redeemed us from the things that we're about to read in Ecclesiastes 2. 
this, this whole sorry business of trying to find real meaning and joy in uh, hedonistic uh, living. He's redeemed us from that, so don't go back to it. That's what he's saying in Peter. So we, as believers, don't want to go back to this life. We've been saved out of this life, praise God. So he tells us now about six insufficient sources of joy and meaning. Verse 2, we see the, the first one, and that is laughter. Laughter and this, this sort of fun that Solomon was on uh, didn't bring about meaning. He says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Now, again, you've got to think about a guy who, who had everything. No need to watch Netflix if you're Solomon. You could just bring the actors into your house, right? So he could have the court gestures. He could have the Kevin Hart's and Jim Gaffigan's and Trevor Noah's. They could just be in the palace. Now, there is a laughter, of course, that glorifies God. Jesus is not a killjoy. Jesus laughed. And we read in Proverbs that laughter is like medicine for the soul. Or Psalm 126, as the psalmist is recounting all that God has done for them, he says our mouths are filled with laughter as we think about what God has done. But this is different. This is not what Solomon is talking about. We need more than comedy to make sense of the deep things of life. Solomon is talking about the fleeting superficial joys that might distract us from pain but can't overcome pain. And it's ironic, isn't it, and sad that many comedians historically have actually been some of the saddest people in the world, many of whom have taken their own lives. Because this sort of laughter might distract us, but it can't overcome what's broken and what's missing. Now, there's, there's joy in life, as we're going to get to. The, the Ecclesiastes is not a downer at the end of the day. Uh, it, there is a sense in which we're being told to enjoy this life. But here is not where we find it. It's not in the folly. It's not in the silliness. Right? No one watches Dumb and Dumber and then goes out and contemplates the meaning of life. Right? That's not a movie that inspires deep reflection. Right? <laughs> but I think if you watch a movie about death and tragedy and loss, you might. And that's why Solomon says in chapter 7, verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. You go to a funeral and you do think about the deep things of life, don't you? Uh, but when you're watching, you know, uh, trivialities, you don't. Death, a dominant theme in Ecclesiastes, forces us to think about the deepest questions. So there is a joy that's deeper. There's a joy that's fuller. There's a joy that's everlasting. But it's not found in this folly. It's found in Christ Jesus. So then he turns to drink. He goes from laughter uh, to alcohol. He says in verse 3, I searched my heart to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man uh, to do under heaven during their few days in life. Now it seems in this text that Solomon tried both uh, experiences, if you will. On the one hand, he has sort of this controlled experience. He wasn't wasting away in Margaritaville when he says, my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. So it's a more respectable uh, use. But then he adds, and that word and, I think shows us that another experience, and how to lay hold on folly. So that was the, the more wild experience. But the party life wouldn't satisfy Solomon either. So he tried to be a, a secular connoisseur, you know, listening to opera with his pinky out. And he tried to be a frat boy dancing with a lampshade on his head. 
and found that there is not, there's no joy in either place, ultimately. Ultimate meaning is not found there. And then he turns, thirdly, to great works. He moves from laughter and alcohol to uh, building things and creating things. And he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted uh, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. And so Solomon, and you can read about this if you like in 1 Kings, particularly in chapter 4, uh, to, talk, to see the lifestyle of Solomon. And you can read about his, his uh, big crib that he built for himself, uh, that he lived in. And the language here that he's using for gardens and parks is actually the language that has echoes of Eden. It's not like our little, uh, you know, uh, grows some mint in our backyard or something, a few tomatoes. See, he's trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. And Solomon says, this, this also didn't lead to ultimate meaning. Fourth, verse 7, he had many possessions. He had servants who worked at his house. He says in 8, he had great possessions, herds and flocks. This man ate really, really well. If you go back and read First Kings 4, you see that. Um, he gathered silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. So think about it. Solomon had the laughter. He had the comedy. He had the entertainment. He had the booze. He, he had a great place to live that was spectacular, that would be on television shows uh, today. Added to that, he had all this wealth. And then he says on top of that, I, ha I got singers. Again, Solomon wouldn't have to do Spotify or Pandora. He would just bring them into his palace. They could just be on call, and he could have Drake and Post Malone and Maroon 5, whoever he wanted, just sort of be there. And we know sometimes that music is a great gift, and it can lift us, but it's not ultimate. And on top of that, sixthly, he tried to satisfy his heart with many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. A concubine was given to a man for sexual pleasure. He was uh, historically known for the, the many women that he was with. And we can identify with these pursuits, can't we, that reside in the human heart? He had it all, verse 9, and became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Anything I wanted, I got. Think about that. Anything I desired, I kept my heart from no pleasure. From my heart found pleasure. Here's where it is, interestingly, and this is where the text is going to leave us today, in the toil. The pleasure was actually in the work. That was the reward. Then I considered all my hands had done and the toil I'd experienced in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity. Striving after the wind, there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So we're back to this question, aren't we? What do you think you need to be? What do you think would make you happy, more fulfilled? More comedy, more alcohol, a bigger home, bigger garden, more possessions, more money, better entertainment, better music. All your sexual desires fulfilled, learn from Solomon. It's not there. You have to learn to see these things for what they really are. And that Ecclesiastes is helping us do that. You have to demythologize these things that we think are going to give us something that they'll never give us. 
You have to deconstruct them. You have to see them for what they are and see that you were made for something else. All of us need to see this, right? You teenagers really need to learn from Solomon that these pursuits, many of your peers, this is all they think about. It won't satisfy. It will just leave you in a puddle of tears like Solomon. But all of us, adults as well, have to see in this text that life is not about accumulating more. It's about treasuring the Savior more. It's about pouring out our lives for the good of others. One thing that's quite striking, you just scan that list again, you see here, how many times Solomon says, I, me, or myself? All of it is filled with him. And this shows us something, right? A self-centered, self-absorbed life is not a fulfilling life. It was all about him, and he was all miserable. The Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Solomon, his motto was the chief end of man is to glorify myself and enjoy myself forever. Now here's the good news. You can enjoy the pleasures of creation, but through God, in reference to God, when you're rightly related to God, but not apart from God. So far, this quest is all apart from God. Riken says it well when he says, pleasure is only safe when God is there. Pleasure is safe when God is there. We can have great laughter when we consider God's goodness to us and the joy that he brings, but not laughing at vulgar things or at someone else's expense. We can receive food and drink to be enjoyed with gratitude, consumed rightly to God's glory as a foretaste of new creation to come. We can glorify God as we gaze upon beautiful parks and gardens and the sights of creation, seeing God's handiwork there. But you see, that's a God-centered worldview. When God is in the picture, everything is put in its proper place. Now, we're going to get there, but at this point, Solomon has taken us down a dead end. And now we turn to death, literally. The third reason for despair is death is inevitable. What Solomon does in verses 12 to 23 is basically recap some of these themes of wisdom and pleasure, and now he throws in something with it, something that is going to dominate his thinking, and that is death. So this won't satisfy. I went after it with great passion. This won't satisfy. I went after it with great passion. And now at the end, death is inevitable. And again, you see here how Solomon is thinking about life to this point, helping us think about life apart from God because we view death differently and as we think about death with a God-centered worldview. But here he says in verse 12, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can a man do when he comes after the king? Only what has been done. No king after me, he's saying, could search out wisdom and pleasure better than me, more than me. Verse 13, 14, he says that being wise is better than being foolish. So we're not advocating be a fool. He says, I saw there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there's more gain in light than in darkness. A wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So wisdom is like light. You know where you're going, but the fool walks in darkness. But then there's the sad conclusion in verse 14. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What, what event? Death. Both the wise and the fool will die. Death is the great equalizer, as it's been said. 
We may invent a lot of things and do a lot of things with technology and healthcare, but we cannot stop death. We can't overturn it. And Solomon is thinking about his quest for wisdom, and you get to the end of his life, it hasn't fulfilled him, and now he recognizes he's going to die like the fool. He reiterates his point in verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. So added to the fact that we will die, Solomon says, we will not even be remembered. Seeing that in the days to come, all will, be, all will have been long forgotten, how, is the, how the wise dies just like the fool. So this is a great lament, isn't it? And he concludes with verse 17. I want a great life verse here for us. Put this one on our coffee mug. So I hated life. <laughs> I just hate life. Now, it's important to notice, I think here, uh, that he doesn't hate God. He hates life. And why does he hate life? Because all he's been thinking about up to this point is the groaning of creation, of the toil, of the, of the frustration, of the futility of life apart from God. So I hated life because what was done under the sun was grievous. And we can identify with that, right? We're struck by the honesty of Ecclesiastes. When we, when we watch the news, we weep sometimes. When we hear people talk about sad events in their lives, we're like Solomon. We, we grieve. This is not unusual to talk like this, by the way. Job put it like this, let the day perish on which I was born. This is a lament. This is like the psalmist lamenting about the hardship of life. We weep when we hear of people harming others and hurting others. We weep at our own sin, don't we? We get emails sometimes and we weep. I was in the bed uh, two weeks ago and I broke a rule that I try to keep, which is never check email in the bed. And I got the saddest email, a colleague of mine, 40 years old, professor uh, at uh, Western Seminary in Portland, good shape. He and I hung out together in November. I was, I'm going out to Portland uh, to be uh, at the school in March. Get an email that he went to the gym, 40-year-old, heart attack, and he died. It's like that. It's all grievous, Solomon says. It's grievous. And we long for Jesus to wipe the tears off of our faces. We long for Jesus to make it all new. And right now we go to our Father with our hearts broken in these moments, don't we? And we know that the Spirit is groaning within us, longing for this new creation. We say with Solomon sometimes, I hate life. Find someone who's lost their husband or wife after many years of marriage. See if they can identify with verse 17. We can. But there's hope. We haven't gotten there yet. But it's coming. Solomon adds to this in verse 18, more despair. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. So what's the point? <laughs> you know this frustration perhaps if you've ever moved and you go back to your old house and you see the place just not taken care of. And you get all frustrated with it all. Who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. And in Solomon's case, his son split the kingdom. Everything that he had built was devastated. 
Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, his work of vexation. And even in the night, we can identify with this experience, can't we? His heart does not rest. Have you ever been restless because of your work? You know, you can worry about not having enough work. You ever been there? Or worry because you have so much work to do, you don't know how you're going to get it done. (laughs) Or worry that you just worry because the work itself is just so stressful. The workaholic is not content. No, we're full of vexation. Solomon's third reason for despair, death is inevitable. He considers this truth and it leads him to despair because like pleasure and like wisdom... He is considering death without God in the picture. But now it's going to change. There is a solution for meaning and joy. Verses 24 to 26. I'm glad you hung around for the solution. Right? (laughs) And here it is. It's so simple. As we said, a summary of Ecclesiastes is fear God in everything and enjoy God in the little things. And here we see one of the great enjoyment texts. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, at first you read this verse, and you're like, that is, it seems like a contradiction because nothing so far has brought you meaning and joy. How can it now bring you meaning and joy? And the answer is in the next verse. Thus far, he's thought about these things apart from God. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Finally, God is mentioned. And finally, now we start to consider the grace of God. Everything up to this point has been a striving for something. Now we see a receiving of something. Meaning and joy come from grace, come from God's goodness. He's not, he's not striving and being frustrated. Now he's receiving. He's recognizing the hand of God. And this little phrase is so important in Ecclesiastes, apart from him. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And the answer is you can't. You can't. It's impossible. And that's why Augustine famously said, right? You have made us, O oh God, for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Solomon has been restless because he's been considering these things apart from God. If there is no relationship with God, there is no meaning, there is no joy. You could have everything in this world, and Solomon is a case study on that, but it won't bring you what you think it might bring you. What makes the difference? Why has the tone changed now? Because God makes all the difference. God's presence makes all the difference. God's grace makes all the difference. Now God is at the center. And now even little things are being recognized as gifts coming from the hand of God. The one who opens up his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. Where do we find joy? Where do we find fulfillment? We find it in the God who made us. A God who's been uh, benevolent to us and merciful to us. But if he's not at the center, if something else is at the center, then we we end up with vanity 
vanity. So let's receive. Let's learn to receive little things with gratitude as gifts from the hand of God. Isn't it remarkable? In these little things like eating and drinking and in your, your work, there's meaning. You don't have to go outside of these things. It is, it is seeing these things as great gifts from God. Those who know the God of grace have the ability to enjoy little things, just like our first parents did in the garden before the fall. That's what they were doing, eating and drinking and enjoying their toil. Now, you might think it's strange that toil is one of the things that would bring us joy. But we are made, aren't we, in the image of God. And God is a worker. In Psalm 104, we see that God has created all these amazing creatures and he's sustaining them. And toward the end, it says that God rejoices in his works. And we're made in the image of that God who gets to rejoice in his work. Solomon's basically saying, take this job and love it. Right? Enjoy your toil. Enjoy your toil. And to do it, as Colossians teaches us, unto the Lord, ultimately. And so we can receive bread and wine and oil and labor and relationships as gifts to be received with grateful hearts. So get a great recipe and go to work in that kitchen to the glory of God. Get around a table with friends and just start enjoying that companionship and give thanks to God for it. See it as a foretaste of the new creation to come. Apart from him, who can have enjoyment? No one. You can't have it apart from him. Endless enjoyment doesn't come from getting a new iPhone. It comes from renewed intimacy with God. And I love how this is a good New Testament summary of what, what I'm saying. 1 Timothy 6, as for the rich in this present age, that would have been Solomon, obviously, charge them not to be haughty, there's arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So again, God's not a killjoy. He's giving us these things to enjoy. But we don't look to the things to give us what God can, can only give us. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works. So enjoy your toil. Enjoy your service to God. They are to be generous, ready to share. Isn't this the opposite of Solomon who's been all about himself? And now, here Paul says, no, be rich in good works. Think about others. Thus storing up treasure for yourself as a, as a good foundation for the future. Taking hold of life that is truly life. That's what we're all after. Life that's truly life. Where is it found? It's found in knowing this God, this God of grace. This God of grace who makes us generous, who, 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 who changes our hearts so that we think about the good of others and not just our own self-interests. So he's receiving God's grace, and finally, he's resting in God's justice. Verse 26, for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he's given uh, the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity, a striving after the wind. You've been very patient. Thank you for waiting for this final verse <laughs> but I want you to see here something that's important for the rest of the book and that is the theme of justice in Ecclesiastes justice is important for understanding the meaning of life because life essentially has no meaning if there is no judgment but because God will judge everything all of life therefore has meaning that's why Phil Riken entitled his commentary 
why everything matters. Instead of nothing matters, actually, Ecclesiastes is saying everything, is, everything matters if you have God who is the judge, who says every little thing you do in my name, even just giving a cup of cold water to someone in need, you will not lose your reward. That God will uh, appropriately handle everyone and everything. And in this case, he says to the one who is, is trying to please God, generally speaking, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, he gives us wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now, of course, there might be persecution if you try to please God. But here he says, this is a fulfilled life. A life that is after God is a fulfilled life. But to those who are going their own way, the way of futility, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give those to those who please God. They, they, their, their experience is one of frustration, not fulfillment. And God will actually use their work to bless his people. If this doesn't happen in this life, it will ultimately happen in the next because the meek, we are told, will inherit the earth. God will make good on everything. He will have the final word. So how is it then that we recognize meaning? How is it that we find real joy in life? We recognize this morning that God is gracious and God is just. He's just. He's taking account of every single thing we do, every single word we say. Therefore, life does matter. It matters when God is in view. And we can find joy in this life because our God is gracious. He gives us good gifts to enjoy. So as we think about this creation, may we also today anticipate the joy of the great feast with our Messiah who will satisfy us in new creation. The Messiah who said no to all the temptations of Solomon, who lived a sinless life and put God's grace and justice on full display at the cross, making a way for hedonists like us to be forgiven and reconciled to God making a way for those of us who lived in absolute futility and stupidity to come to know him and love him. The Messiah who conquered the greatest fear in Ecclesiastes, namely death, through his death and resurrection. It's this Messiah who provides meaning and joy, who tells us our labor is not in vain when it is done to his glory. So let's get busy about his glory. Father, what a picture of life, the honesty of it, and the hope of it. We recognize the frustrations in this life that Ecclesiastes is pointing out. I pray that we would not look to things to give us what only our God can give us. And I pray this message would be a message that resides not only deeply in our hearts today, but comes out of our mouths as we point people to the hope that we found in Jesus Christ. Now we Prepare our hearts for the table, being mindful of your goodness, of your grace, your hand that satisfies us. Even now as we take the bread and cup, be pleased in us in Jesus' name.